Hey, Graham here. This is episode nine. Nine, I tell you, of positive feedback. Tell your friends. Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between, with your host, Graham Redfern. Most of us have special places that we fell in love with when we were kids. For me, it was the rolling craggy hills of the Lake District in the north of England and Turf Moor, the home of my beloved Burnley Football Club, wedged into the side of the Pennine Hills. For marine biologist Professor Ove Gulberg, his place was the Great Barrier Reef. Ove studied corals and reefs as a student and then as a distinguished academic. In the 1990s, he wondered why more and more corals around the world were starting to turn white. His pioneering research sounded an alarm for corals around the world. Ove's the director of the Global Change Institute at the University of Queensland. But he's at a bunch of conferences and meetings in Europe. And I spoke to him from Monaco, that tiny principality that's attached to the bottom right-hand side of France. We talk a bit about climate science denial, we talk about the future for reefs and that moment in the late 1990s when the data almost knocked him off his chair. But first, I asked him, what does he remember of that first dive on the reef back in 1969? Well, I really have this impression um, that I remember every part of that moment Um, and it was was 1969 and my grandfather and grandmother used to come out from Denmark and he was a retired medical doctor who was also a butterfly expert and so he would be collecting for the Danish Museum when he was out in Australia and see the family and we were all growing up in Sydney Um, but this one year he he went up to the Whitsundy Island it's called Palm Bay, I seem mm. to remember. Palm Bay. <laughs> anyway, it's destroyed by a, a, a cyclone, I think, um, a year or two later. But anyway, it was one of those things where it's sort of, you know, uh, the exotic um, rainforest and catching butterflies and strange inst- insects. And part of it was that we went for a snorkel off this place we were staying. And, mm. yeah, I, I still remember it really vividly. It was, you know... It probably wasn't much of a reef, you know, these are inshore reef systems in that that area, but I just remember seeing a butterfly fish. Oh. This sort of gorgeous creature with sort of orange and white and, and a long nose um, swimming among the coral. And, and how old is Ove at this stage? Well, I'm 10. Um, and I think by that time the men had landed on the moon. Right. Uh, and sure, that was interesting. Uh-huh. <laughs> right? Yeah, but, it, uh, it would be to a 10-year-old, I guess. It was, but, but nature, you know, really had a strong calling for me. You know, it was, I don't want to sound, it was sort of, you know, that, that was the thing that, that I was so excited about at that stage. And so, yeah, you know, the double page spread in the paper with the first colour printing, you know, showing the astronauts on the moon was pretty cool, but the butterfly fish was potentially cooler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, and I, I, can, I can relate to that because uh, I took... I took my son and daughter up to Heron Island a few years ago, a place you'll know really well, 
Um, mm. And um, I think my daughter would have been uh, five or six at the time. And I, and I just remember um, her pulling on the mask, shoving her head under the water, having no clue what she was about to see. And we were, we were stood on, on, a, on a reef flat. Um, as, as it is here, and it's all very, very shallow. You'll not, you know it really well. So we're stood on the sand, but there's there's a lot of the, there's a lot of uh, branching coral there, uh, mm. and she she stuck her head under the water, and and I'll never forget the look on her face. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was like she'd been introduced to an entirely new world, um, mm. uh, and and so yeah, I think I can relate to a ten year old that would have. Um, that would have been blown away by that kind of stuff. Yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, and, and it is that that um, sense of wonder that kids have when they see the Great Barrier Reef first. You know, the just the vastness and the you know thousands of colourful bits and species and so on. It's just, yeah, it's it's something that you you can't you can't sort of rep. Yeah. Other than visiting the Barrier Reef. So to, let's jump forward a little bit. Um, so tell us what you were uh, you were up to in the the sort of the late eighties. You're you're uh, you're at university, I, I think. Which university were you? Where did you go to? I got a scholarship to go overseas and and do a PhD in in, in California. So I was at the University of California at Los Angeles. Um, but some of my field work was uh, done back in Australia. In fact, I did. I was working on corals in the Red Sea and Australia and one of the things that we worked on you know with my supervisor Len Muscatine was um, you know this curious phenomenon of of coral bleaching which was starting to occur at that time on reefs like Lizard Island where I was working mm. and, um, and and you know I, I think many people are familiar with the the idea that Corals are this symbiosis between a tiny plant that lives inside the tissues, and that that those tiny plants are absolutely essential to corals, and of course corals are essential to the Great Barrier Reef. So it was sort of a really um, interesting time because we're seeing the first sort of really big bleaching events on on the reef and other other coral reefs around the world. Do you do you remember seeing that? For the for the first time, um, do do you recall even then as you were diving? Do you recall having a hunch what was going on? Or I, I guess I was first the, the first sort of you know seeing bleached corals was photographs that came from the Caribbean and they they and some sort of you know coral samples from people that were working on the issue in the Caribbean and then it was later uh, a couple of years later when I was uh, on the reef in, I think it was 87, when there were very warm conditions that, that sort of, not as warm as we've seen recently, I should, mm. should add. It's, it's changed quite a bit, but they're enough to sort of cause corals to bleach at pretty low intensity. So, you know, you'd go out onto the reef and you'd see maybe, you know, one in every four corals was uh, was bleached and, and not particularly bad. But anyway, it's sort of really piqued my curiosity about why this was happening and because I was working on some related issues I started to do experiments where I exposed corals to tiny amounts of environmental change so I changed the salinity and try and see if I could replicate 
um, coral bleaching. Mm. And the only thing that would cause it to happen um, was when you changed the temperature. And that was just at a few temperature, you know, a few degrees above the sort of summer maxima and you you could get corals to bleach just like they were on the on the reef. And at that stage, even even at even going into those experiments, did you um, did you did you think that the experiments were going to back up what you kind of what what you thought, what your hunch was that that this was this phenomenon was due to um, increased sea surface temperatures? I, I guess there was sort of um, speculation at that time about global warming mm. um, and it really sort of kicked off in the 70s and and I think people were starting to speculate about whether this phenomenon in the uh, on coral reefs around the world was due to temperature and those people like um, Peter Glynn who was a scientist over at uh, University of Miami I think he still is there but he he had uh, he started to write articles in the the early 1980s that sort of saying well you know this could be you know an impact of global warming mm. so we I, I had some sort of expectation that it, it might be related to temperature as it was um, we also identified an important part of uh, of light playing a role so that you know corals that uh, were placed in warm conditions but shaded um, didn't bleach as badly and that turned out to be quite important information to understanding the mechanism right of, of why why it was happening inside the algae there was sort of you know it, it was the right time to do those experiments and then once we'd done them it was like wow this is really you know this is interesting because it's only driven by temperature as a fundamental with perhaps light as a secondary factor yeah and then when you went out into the field and you started to get the first sort of satellite data that was becoming available in the early 80s um you saw this correlation between bleaching and and what the satellites were measuring in terms of, of uh, temperature anomalies, meaning you know, you know, when it was too warm, you got lots of bleaching uh, associated on the ground as the satellites yeah, yeah. Um, measured sea temperature. Yeah, um, you, you a, a, a paper that you became quite famous for um, was when you you started to look at projections on sea surface temperatures. I think this was in the maybe the late 90s you, you started mm -hmm. to look at projections um and, and clearly uh sea surface temperatures were going were, were, were only going to go in one direction generally speaking um and you were interested in what sort of impact that would have in the long term on on corals and 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 coral bleaching um what what did you do you, do you do you remember running those numbers and um even before you'd written the paper do you remember that that result and your reaction to it I do very much and um yeah so the 90s we gathered lots and lots of evidence and so on and because there was a really good link between temperature and bleaching and the death of corals as a result of bleaching um we we used model data going forward in terms of you know how warm were the seas going to be and it just became a sort of a, a curious question on my behalf um, uh, because I really did think at that point that um, you know really catastrophic effects of of warm conditions you know global warming on coral reefs would um, be something that might manifest itself a hundred years from now mm. and um, I was living in the Blue Mountains just west of Sydney um, 
and was a lecturer at the University of Sydney. And so I was given some of the sort of modeling data by uh, people that were out of the European community that did this sort of thing. Um, and I did a very simple thing, which was just to sort of take the, the model outputs for future temperatures for particular places around the planet. And I plotted the known um, threshold for for bleaching and, and, and mortality of corals. Mm. So when they crossed over, so that was when temperatures were getting too warm for corals and so on. And um, it was a Sunday, I, I think, and I was busy sort of working in the back room and um, taking these very large files at the time and and examining this, you know, when, when did they get too warm for, for corals? And mm. um, it was within 30 or 40 years. And it was sort of almost sort of, I almost fell off my chair. Uh, so I then went back and recalcul you know, recalculated the numbers and, and just to make sure that I hadn't made a mistake. And, yep, sure it was. And so it was this sort of um, flip in terms of my thinking from, yeah, we're studying this phenomenon, it's really interesting, but it's really not going to be a problem until, you know, 100, 200 years from now, to, wow, it's a matter of decades away. And, you know, I, I could... Uh, live to see reefs get into real trouble. Yeah, um, and um, yeah, it was it was an odd moment. So in two thousand and eight, I think on the Great Barrier Reef, we saw um, we saw mass bleaching. I think I've got that that year right. And then again in two thousand and sixteen, and then again in two thousand and seventeen. Um, uh, it, it seems like it wasn't even 30 years before some journalists and some scientists are, feels like some were already writing the obituary for the reef. Yeah, yeah look, um, I, I think the events of um, 16 and 17 were truly shocking. Um, uh, again, um, it's almost as if we've... Yeah, well, I mean, I should I should say the paper in '99 got me um, quite a reputation. Lots of sort of, you know, tough contests from other academics who said it was rubbish, and uh, and from people in broader society calling me a, you know, an, an environmental greenie, um, you know, that I that I'd overegged the, uh, the the situation and. Um, you would have been an alarmist, right? Yeah, totally. Like <laughs> yeah. I was called that Robert Hill of all people um, when I was at one of the uh, early cops, these climate meetings. Mm, Robert Hill would and, have been the uh, Australia's uh, environment minister, I think. That's right. Yeah. And, and I'm very good friends with him today, so um, <laughs> <laughs> we've, we've uh, buried the hatchet. But um, the, you know... For people like that that were really trying to come to grips with it, they they really felt that it was um, you know it was one scientific modelling study and you know some unknown academic who'd sort of made these claims and uh, you know and there were important negotiations going on over you know emission reductions and and so on coming into the sort of you know and even other academics I mean I, I, they'll remain nameless but. Many mm. academics sort of, you know, oh, this is uh, this is just alarmist and, and so on. But rather than being alarmist, it's, you know, in, in my view, it justified alarming and, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, but the 
issue in the end um, was that I think we've been conservative again with seeing the effects of the last two years. Because one of the things that the model that that I am, um, you know, using the sort of the climate um, projection data, uh, one of the predictions was that you'd eventually get back-to-back -back bleaching events. But, you know, when you look at the, the numbers, we were sort of feeling that this is going to be something that might be manifesting itself in 2030 and 2040. But that's what we had hmm. last in the last two years. And there have been massive impacts. I mean, the total amount of coral, uh, when you adjust it to, you know, the, the reef, it's basically half of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef died over two years. Yeah. Which, you know... You know, that's a size, you know, that's that's a huge ecosystem, you know, something you see from outer space, it's the size of Italy, it's this monster uh, change in the fortunes of, of marine life. You know, and you, you've got to remember that this is not just about coral reefs, when coral reefs actually harbour, you know, about 30% of the life in the ocean. Mm. Uh, and so losing half of the, the trees, inverted comma, that's what corals are. Yeah. You know, losing half of the trees on, on the reef um, is really just destabilizing marine biodiversity on a, on a huge scale. When, uh, when you see impacts like that and, and you've been invested in, in the issue for such a long time, um, and also you, it, it's affecting a place that you, you know, you're in love with, essentially. Mm -hmm. um, uh, how does that some people might wonder um how do you how do you keep a sense of of objectivity that's that's needed for you to sort of keep doing your work as a as as a scientist that that must be a hard uh that thing to separate yeah um it's almost like a my senses are, have been dulled you know it's, it is a really bad nightmare that that we're experiencing and and in terms of of how i view it uh, you know i i have to be optimistic it's you know even though it really you know the the chips are down as they say mm. um one has to to really hope that um we can very rapidly adjust the conditions so that we don't lose reefs for all time and They've been with us for, you know, two to three hundred million years, uh, and yes, there's been meteor impacts and things that have sort of slowed their growth. But, uh, you know, and they've come back over time. But for us, um, as humans, to to see the collapse of this important part of of the Earth systems we depend on um, should be really, really worrying. Should be, you know, and I, and I don't think people quite get it. Um, mm. uh, and and so a lot of what I do nowadays is is, is try and communicate, and I'm involved in the intergovernmental panel on climate change, and I spend a lot of time with um, uh, leaders and 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 people that that have potential to have impact. Um, you know, you know, ideally I'd like to be back on the reef doing research, but um, it's become so dire that I, I feel that every waking moment has to be spent. You know. Uh, you know, I've raised the funding myself uh, in terms of, of uh, being able to attend these things. I, I depend very much on mm. on that sort of resource to, to get there. But 
at this point in time, uh, you couldn't have a more serious situation. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. So we're chatting to Over Goldberg, one of the pioneers of research into coral bleaching. So there's a tendency, I think, for people in the Western world to think of coral reefs as something that's just nice to look at on TV documentaries and maybe if we're really lucky to actually go and visit. For about 69,000 people, though, in Queensland, their jobs depend on the reef. But for millions of other people around the world, coral reefs give them their food to survive. I asked Alv if that's something that we tend to forget. Yeah, um, I mean, there's two ways that I think about this. I mean, one is that, um, you know, we really do need to to know those numbers to make sure that people realise that this is not just a diving holiday that's at stake. And and that's where those numbers that you've mentioned just for the Great Barrier Reef, um, mm. you know, the 69,000 people, this sort of $6 billion um, uh, income to Queensland from people visiting the reef and, and to a small extent from you know, fisheries. Yeah. Um, and, and, I, and I think that's really important. But then when you look you know, globally um, and you realise that there's hundreds of millions of people that depend on healthy coral reefs for their daily protein, so it's, you know, it's not a cash economy, if you like, mm. those hundreds of millions of people are going out onto the reef um, every day to to collect fish or or other resources to take back to their family to you know um, you know keep the kids fed you know it, it's it's a much even it's an even greater problem and and it's you know at this point it gets to things like well you know if you've degraded this coastal resource to the point where it doesn't produce the fish to support the people then you start to increase poverty and they often mm. talk about a poverty trap along coastal areas where you know you're, you're getting these declines and people get more desperate so they then start to um, unsustainably interact with the resources they catch want to you know blow up reefs to get the last bits of protein out and so on yeah. and of course that then means there's less for everyone and you know people spiraling into this poverty trap and of course you know at, at broader scales um, when you look at Southeast Asia for example where a lot of these people are living um, there's real potential for you know, people to to migrate then towards large cities or to countries like Australia and the whole region mm. it can be less stable because of the loss of these important resources. And I should say that, you know, we're talking about mangroves and seagrass and a whole range of different parts of the system. Yeah. Um, so, so you know, you know, so so that utility, you know, the the lens of utility is really really important. Um, but I'm often reminded that, you know, I get into the mode of talking all the time about, you know, what we're losing in terms of economic benefits and so on and so forth. And we lose the seeing reefs through the lens of wonder, you know, mm. going back to 1969 and my personal experience. But, you know, um, we have to take into account all of these different bits and pieces. And I, I asked recently, I'm at a workshop at the moment um, uh, in here in Monaco, um, where the Prince, together with Prince Charles, has a, a declaration on on the urgent action that needs to be taken to save coral reefs. And um, I finished my talk <laughs> because I was in France. That's okay. All right, in Monaco and it's the south of France. Um, 
yeah. lots of French scientists there. And I said, well, look, you know, um, I, I, I have a question, you know, um, you know, why do we care about the Impressionist paintings more than coral reefs? Because if I said to you, let's burn 10% of the Impressionist artists, um, there'd be complete outrage, you know, the, uh, outrage, right? You know, yeah. let's throw on again <laughs> this year and we'll, we'll do um, on A next year. You know, um, these are unique parts. The, the paintings are unique and the reef's unique. And so, uh, you know, once you've lost the Impressionist paintings or you've lost the coral reef, um, you know, you're in the same circumstance. You can't get them back. Um, uh, they are unique. And and it was interesting, you know, the, the reaction because um, we often, we sort of, we are in the sort of presenting the numbers continuously, you know, how many dollars are earned by fisheries and tourists and so on and how important they are to people and all that sort of stuff. But we've got to remember that these things are also unique and a one-time only, mm. you know. If you, if you do away with them, it's, it's it. Yeah. <laughs> uh there is there are some conversations now um going on between um scientists like yourself um uh, how do, how is is there a way to to fix this because you, you people have seen the the projections on sea surface temperatures they know it's going to get hotter they know that without doing anything that corals uh, are going to be uh highly stressed um, uh, and I, I did a story for the Guardian a few weeks ago about um, uh, some scientists at the Australian Institute for Marine Science, a, a government, uh, Australian government-funded group, where they were they were saying now is the time that we have to start to talk about tech fixes, essentially, is what I describe them as. But the uh, things like uh, assisted evolution uh, or assisted gene therapy uh which it essentially is either um uh, uh thinking about ways to grow more resistant corals in laboratories not necessarily through sort of what people understand as sort of uh, genetic engineering but but that may mm. may come into it later um or uh, taking um uh, uh corals from warmer areas more more heat resistant corals moving them somewhere else or or replanting areas of corals there's all sorts of of um of of ideas now being thrown out there uh, it, it sometimes feels like it's almost in a panic because the conventional uh management of reefs isn't working What's your take on 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 some of those some some of those ideas of of they're they're always they're always described as saving the reef, um, mm. uh, but mm. what what what's your take on on some of those some of those ideas? Well, we're at a point where we need to consider all all types of solutions. You know, we've we've got to start to to do something because we're we're losing the war. I mean, fifty percent of coral um, over the last 30 years and then if you take the last two years on the Great Barrier Reef and many other places around the planet uh, we've lost you know 50% yet again um, and so we need to do something very different um, that said we've got to be very careful of um, drinking the cordial if you like uh, and and imagining that, well, if we could just get that magic bullet and fire it at the problem, we'd live happily ever after. And that's not possible or credible. Um, so one of the lenses I, I think you need to 
to have with respect to these um, suggestions is also to to think about the scalability and and the and the cost and the and and, and you know the so-called techno-economics, mm. um, because when you do the numbers, um, they don't quite work out, right? Yeah. So just for an example, and I'll come back to this point in a minute, but um, if you just take the Great Barrier Reef and you say, well, let's repair the reef from recent bleaching, so we'll start to plant corals, mm. uh, you can actually get an, you know, a rough estimate of what it would cost. So let's take a coral and we'll plant one every five Square meters across the forty thousand square kilometers of coral reefs in the marine, you know, marine park, mm. uh, and if each of those costs about five dollars or so, you quickly get to, you know, um, fifty billion dollars to recover one species. And then, if you want a bit of biodiversity, remembering that there's six hundred different species of coral uh, in and around the the reef. Uh, well, you know, multiply that by say 500, and you, you you're getting into trillions of dollars yeah. of, of, and of course, if you haven't fixed fixed the, you know, the source of the problem, um, you know, sea temperature changing uh, really rapidly, uh, you're going to have to do it every 20 years. So, um, these numbers, I think, just demonstrate that we have to be uh, credible in these solutions. Now. That said, people are saying, well, oh, yeah, but, you know, if we get involved, we do some research, we could find, um, so, you know, solutions to that cost problem and make it cheaper and so on. And, and sure, you know, coral aquaculture could uh, get very sophisticated and and, and uh, you could have uh, the production of large amounts of corals and so on. But to me, I think the issue here is that the source of the problem, which is increasing emissions of CO2 into the atmosphere is actually cheaper and and more straightforward to to fix than one with coral reefs. And of course, then you multiply this to all the other ecosystems that are in trouble and impacts on agriculture and storm systems and so on and so forth. And, you know, you have to come back to saying, well, you know, it's, it's actually cheaper and easier yeah. to deal with that uh, problem at, at the origin. Yeah, economists like to. Some economists like to talk about bang for your buck based on you know what do you get as a return for your investment, um, mm -hmm. and uh, yeah, if, if you're managing to reduce emissions, burn a lot less fossil fuels, um, then replace that with a lot more renewables, um, mm -hmm. then it, it would be very difficult actually to get surely to get a, an accurate number on what your savings are because the the benefits are cut across all sorts of uh, of environments and you know the Absolutely. saving reefs would be just one i know you think of sea level rise you know and 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 the impact on the infrastructure of the planet uh you know it's a no-brainer but for some reason we just have this really perverse situation where um, the people that are making the decisions or influencing those decisions are ignoring the science i mean we have you know, companies in their boardrooms, you know, as was recently reported, um, you know, discussing the, you know, saying, well, the scenario is we're going to go to four degrees Celsius. So, you know, let's uh, build our models around that. And that's just crazy. I mean, mm. that would be the end of the planet as we know it and uh, and ourselves. And, it, you know, that sounds, you know, alarm. Alarmist, yeah. <laughs> you know, you know, 
<laughs> you have to look at the evidence and, and realize how uh, they, these are credible, you know, high probability uh, possibilities. If uh, you know, if we don't, uh, I mean, going back to that that cost. I mean, the IPCC has, uh, for a number of reports that they produce every, you know, five to seven years, has looked at, you know, had groups of very, very credible economists sort of looking at the question of, of, you know, the the cost of of shifting and solving the problem, and and they're tiny. Mm. You know, the net cost has been estimated at something like, you know, sacrificing, you know. 0.1% of GDP growth over the next 50 years. So that's not even, you know, that's not even sort of going backwards. That's just adjusting down the rate of growth by a tiny fraction and you've solved the problem. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, the, you know, the cost of storm damage and the impacts on ecosystems like coral reefs and the inequity and unfairness that that generates. And you just go, well, why are we not doing that? So you're in Monaco, and you mentioned earlier, and I almost let the whole thing slip by, and you, you, you throw in a couple of names into the conversation there, Prince Albert of Monaco and Prince Charles, a couple of people that you've been, <laughs> you seem to have been knocking around with quite recently. Here's a bit of Prince Charles's speech from that Our Oceans conference in Malta earlier in October this year. I must say I was enormously touched and flattered to be asked by Commissioner Vella and uh, the Prime Minister to be with you here today at the 2017 Our Ocean Summit and finally able to speak to you in person instead of via the rather disembodied medium of a video message. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that I'm much more effective as a video message. But unfortunately today you'll have to put up with me in person. Coral reefs are perhaps the clearest litmus tests we have to gauge progress relative to the impact of an unsustainable blue economy. These incredible ecosystems host about two-fifths of all marine species on just 2% of the seabed. They protect many vulnerable coasts from storms, are nurseries for the young of commercially valuable fish, and provide food and livelihoods for more than one billion people. Coral reefs economic value is then truly vast, at least while they are still intact. The fact that we seem to have catastrophically underestimated their vulnerability to climate change, acidification and pollution, and that significant portions of the Great Barrier Reef off Australia's eastern coast have been severely degraded or lost over the last few years is both a tragedy and also, I would have thought, a very serious wake-up call. Do you get a sense of what people like Prince Albert of Monaco and Prince Charles, what, what, their, what their concerns are? Do you, do you get to have conversations with people like that? Well, um, both of the two royals have been really actively involved in sustainability. Um, so uh, Prince Albert II has... Um, been a big sponsor of research into coral reefs and polar environments and, you know, all sorts of, of, of uh, important uh, issues. Uh, but he's really taken up this issue of um, ocean warming and acidification as a major theme. And, and meanwhile, of course, you know, um, 
Prince Charles has been very much involved in, uh, you know, he's created the International Sustainability Unit that has, you know, really pursued sustainability. And he also has been taken by how enormous the challenges are and how important the challenges are in terms of of uh, oceans. And so it's it's more than just it's more than just name dropping. I mean, I I think really <laughs> these people are involved. Uh, and the reason I mention them is just to say, look, I mean, you know, this is now uh, rippling through international community. And I, what I really hope is that we will come to a tipping point in how we deal with fossil fuel. You, um, you were at the University of Queensland a few years ago when, when Barack Obama gave a speech there Um uh, where he he talked a lot about quite a lot about the reef, and you just mentioned that the former Secretary of State John Kerry, uh, but of course that they're they're not in office anymore. Um, instead, mm-hmm. we've got we've got uh, President Donald Trump, um, uh, who um, is himself uh, a climate science denier, um, mm-hmm. uh, and he's surrounded himself with other people who, who think pretty much the same way as he does. Um, and in Australia, our, our, our former Prime Minister Tony Abbott very recently, on, only a, uh, a week ago uh, or less, gave a speech in London to a think tank there headed by Lord Lawson, who was Margaret Thatcher's treasurer, where, where Tony Abbott said, oh, global warming, uh, it might not be happening, uh, but if it is happening, it might be really good. Um, uh, and... You yourself, as has Prince Charles, actually been sort of attacked by uh, sort of conservative commentators and climate science deniers over the years. Um, so you, you know you've come under attack. Uh, the science has come under attack, and and we currently have this this situation where you know the the um, the the enthusiasm of Barack Obama on climate has been removed and replaced with the denialism of Donald Trump. Um, mm. uh, is how much damage do you think that's the, uh, that does when you get high level politicians like that who, who appear unable to just grasp the science? Well, I mean, to the question of you know, uh, has the change of government in the U.S. you know um, has that come with ramifications for pro- uh, the unraveling of, of um, key bits of legislation that took a very long time to get in place uh, is very retrograde because it opens the door uh, to um, increased uh, reliance on fossil fuels and so on and, and the dedication of infrastructure and all that stuff that really is important. But that said, um, the US has very large state economies like, you know, New York or California, which are the size of countries. And they have been very progressive. So when you look at um, what California is doing, they're really going towards sort of zero carbon at a very, very rapid rate. rate. So in a way, the presidency um, sitting in Washington um, isn't going to reverse that. So there are all Mm. these sub-national I think, give us reasons for hope. Um, I mean, in our own circumstance with um, politicians like Tony Abbott, um, you know, the the fact that we have the debate going on without any reference to, in his mind, 
without mm. any reference to to science, I think is a is a worry. I mean, how a a supposed leader in here in Australia can um, just ignore science uh, and and come to uh, their own conclusions about what should be done um, sort of defies. You know, you start to ask questions. You know, really was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, was this guy really suited to be prime minister? Science, mm. and you don't make decisions on evidence. Uh, then, you know, that that's that's pretty hard to justify. Yeah, through the Global Change Institute and a couple of other, I think, partner groups, you, you organised some briefings for for politicians in in um, Canberra uh, a couple of years ago. I, I um. Uh, and and one of them was, I think, to a uh, one of the briefings was to a backbench uh, uh, committee of uh, the the coalition. So that's sort of the 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 right wing nationals and uh, liberals mm-hmm. in Australia. You organised a briefing for that group, um, mm-hmm. but it, it didn't it didn't go how um, you were expecting, did it? No, and it was sort of interesting. Um, so it was the idea of going to Canberra prior to Paris. To outline, you know, bring some experts to the table, you know, John Church uh, and and a number of others who undeniably sort of uh, uh, some of the greats in this sort of these fields, and to put them at at um, you know around the table with politicians, so mm. that ask questions, get a better understanding. And of course, people had signed up, and it was supported by you know the Greens, Labor, and the Coalition, uh, you know, very non-partisan. Uh, sort of group and and meeting, um, but in the lead up to visiting Canberra, I got a phone call from um, I think it was Kelly who uh, they this had a Craig Kelly M- MP. It was yeah. Craig Kelly, mm. yeah, and um, they have an alternative environment committee that uh, met every so often, and he said, "Well, you know, we'd really like you to you and the scientists to come and um, you know talk to us." Mm. And now, you know one of the things that I think we have to do uh, more and more is to get outside our comfort zone and talk to, you know, not to the choir anymore, right, or the converted. Uh, so this was very, yep, yep, we'll turn up, that's great, everything, and then uh, closer to the event even before we left, he said, oh, but I'm going to bring in our alternative scientists. And it's like, oh, okay, fine. Like alternative and, facts, kind of. Yes, absolutely. So anyway, I began to sort of twig what this is all about. Anyway, so we went there and um, we, um, you know, presented uh, our talks and everything. And then, of course, up jumped the alternative scientists, which was, you know, Jennifer Marahassi, uh, Bob Carter and and some other guy who was uh, had just finished a report on the health benefits of coal. Mm. Um, so and, these these three these three people are um, they all uh, well Bob Carter has passed away now but the the um, they were all at the time uh, associated with the Institute of Public Affairs which sounds uh, a fairly innocent sounding organisation but is uh, <laughs> a, a, a a a free market and I'm doing that thing with my with my 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 scare quote fingers a free market. Uh, think tank. I'm doing the little scare thing again with my fingers, um, uh, uh, and uh, the, I've, I've written a lot about that group. They've they've they they have, have pushed around climate science denial since the since the late eighties. Um, so th- th- that experience of having essentially like a backbench committee in the coalition bring in a, a, a bunch of uh, uh, deniers. What? How did that sort of inform you about? 
the the way the rump of a particular political sort of coalition mm. is prepared to sort of engage. Well, you know, walking in there, one of the things that really struck me was how many there were of them, right? Um, people in the room were sympathetic to this particular way of viewing the science. Mm. Um, there was, you know, 20 people in the room, 20 leaders. Um, and uh, to me, that was sort of interesting because I sort of thought it was so fringe that I'd be talking to a few people. Um, but I wasn't. Um, there was, and, and I won't name names, but basically that that group, um, it was a massive echo chamber for, you know, their their um, particular opinions on this matter. Mm. Um and then, of course, it was just simply the sort of <laughs> Jennifer Marahasi walking around the, the room um, saying that the CSIRO was a sort of a, a secretive organisation that was faking data. Uh, it's just absolutely ludicrous stuff. Um, mm. And, of course, Bob Carter was sort of grumbling in his beard and, and um, you know, going on about how it had all happened before and that, you know, CO2 was good good for plants, you know. And it was sort of had the... You know, had the the atmosphere of Looney Tunes. You know, um, but what you know, it's really interesting when you you ask the question. You know, why do these people are they are they somehow? Um, you know, is it is is it they don't understand the science, or they're denying the science because it's convenient uh, in terms of of uh, the people that want to influence them? And I I think it's a bit of both. Mm. Um, uh, well, with all the you know Nobel laureates and scientific academies and scientists generally, you know, 97% of scientists sort of uh, supporting, uh, you know, the notion that climate change was happening and it was very serious and that humans were causing it, all that sort of stuff. You know, you know, what, you, what, what, what's your alternative sort of set to match that up? Yeah, yeah. Money to a whole bunch of bloggers. Yeah. <laughs> and you know. Um, and, 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 you know, one of them was a retired electrician. It's like, well, um, you know, this guy's a retired electrician, probably a great electrician, but, you know, is he the one you want to trust or is it, you know, uh, the people that have been studying science, you know, the science of climate change forever and, and uh, have come to consensus through the scientific process? And, um, yeah, it was just really interesting to sort of see that. Um, mystifying in some ways. Yeah, mystifying. And, yeah. Um, Almost, you know, you start to sort of see it as a sort of a, almost a, a, a syndrome. You're listening to Positive Feedback, a podcast about climate science, denial, and all that stuff in between. So that's that. A nice little potted history of how one scientist discovered a grim future for coral reefs. But back then it was a future that was very much avoidable. Thanks to Professor Over Goldberg. All this sort of reminds me of, of a quote from Sherwood Rowland, a scientist who won the 1995 Nobel Prize for Chemistry. He said, What is the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if, in the end, all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true? The audio of Prince Charles's speech comes courtesy of the official YouTube channel of the British Royal Family because that's a, a thing these days. Thanks for listening to Positive Feedback, produced and funded by me, Graham Redfern. And please share, review, like, subscribe, or leave comments on the podcast's homepage 
at soundcloud.com forward slash positive feedback podcast. Thanks a lot.